This is Media Business Matters, the podcast about why recent news in the media business matters to people who love media. I'm Amanda Lotz. And I'm Alex Entner. In this week's episode, we welcome Tamar Charney to North Quad Studios. Tamar is the managing editor for NPR One, where she creates and executes new editorial strategies for programming the app. Prior to working on NPR One, Tamar was the program director for Michigan Radio, where she managed on-air, online, and news strategy, as well as operations. Tamar, welcome to Media Business Matters. Glad to be here. So just to bring our listening audience up to speed, you are managing NPR One, which is an app created by NPR. It's designed for digital listening and to blend the national NPR as well as the member station news reporting into an individualized experience. And NPR describes it as primarily a local national news magazine experience, but enabled with digital capabilities that customize to the user and enable features such as skipping. It launched in beta in July 2014, and you started working on it in early 2016. So can you explain more to the audience who might not be familiar or have used the app, uh, what it is and how it works and, and really how it's different than NPR's news app? Sure. So NPR One was created because we were seeing changes in how particularly the younger generation was consuming news content. Um, Radio and terrestrial broadcasting has worked great for public radio for many, many, many years. But we were seeing declines in younger listening, you know, because people who are under the age of 35, 25, just aren't listening to radio the same way baby boomers and even Gen Xers were. And so we were thinking, you know, we want to make sure that what we do, this national local blend of news content and great journalism and great storytelling is really going to be there for the next generation that is used to interacting with media in a much more interactive way. They want to be able to skip. They want to be able to share. They want the um, systems they interact with to know a little bit about them and be responsive to what their life, you know, who they are and what they're interested in. So we really thought about this as how do we create the public radio for the next generation and really the future of public radio listening. So that was what it was designed to do. And did you feel or do you know from how it is used, is it really a matter of the behaviors around radio use, that sharing and that realm of activities, is is that seem to be a key driver? Or I think the other thing that digital technologies provide for us is a much more flexibility in how and where we consume. Is, Is an issue that people just aren't in places where radio is accessible as much anymore? The answer is yes. And yes to both, (laughs) frankly. Um, We're seeing people are in places where there aren't radio and things like smartphones are, you know, ubiquitous. They're always with you. We're also seeing that people really expect to be able to interact differently. You know, this is a generation that's grown up with media that's responsive to them, whether it's Netflix or Facebook or, you know, you name it. They're used to some level of responsiveness. And quite frankly, for a user used to that, it's really frustrating to listen to a radio that you can't control. You can't start it when you want to start. You know, it started at the top of the hour and you couldn't tune in until 10 past Mm -hmm. and you missed the newscast Mm -hmm. and you missed some of the, the top stories of the day. So we provide that kind of public radio experience wherever and whenever somebody wants to actually start it. So it's kind of like a customized, you know, public radio show there for you whenever you want it that mixes news from your community with the top stories of the day, maybe a podcast or two that we've learned you've liked and really create this experience that is customized for you, but still is giving you the information you need to know as an informed citizen and a little bit of that serendipity that people have always come to public radio for. 
So I primarily study television, and so I, I look at all things through that lens. And so in a way, this functions a bit like something like a DVR mm -hmm. for, for radio in, in allowing that kind of temporal control, um, but also... Um, no, it's, it seems deeper than than simply that ability to, to shift time, but to... Because you're not necessarily choosing the stories. You do have the ability to choose stories at some points, right? Oh, absolutely. You yeah. can search for pretty much anything you want. We have a section called Explore where we present... It's kind of a discovery section, a mm -hmm. number of things that either curators have discovered, things your local station is doing. So we try to make it easy if you're a very active user and you know what mm -hmm. you want to get to the content you want. So in that sense, it's like a DVR. Mm -hmm. But there's also the algorithmic component exactly. as well. Exactly. So a blend of sort of the recommendation engine and the um, user-selected. And a yes. big dose of curation by, yes. you know, ed editors who are specialists in figuring out what is going to create that mix of need-to-know content that's mm -hmm. going to really expand your horizons and mm -hmm. support what we know you are really interested in. Well, and certainly, in the, given the vastness of NPR's content, in, if you were simply listening to the radio, you would probably have no idea, actually, how much is available because the experience is so localized. And there's certain advent advantages to that. You want to hear about what's going on near you. But that whole universe of programming that maybe isn't picked up by your station, it's not, it doesn't fit into that 24-hour broadcast schedule. Uh, it, it sounds like it also makes that world of... NPR content, which is also curated in its its own right, um, available to a, a full nation of viewers. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so it really does put some of the choice and the power of the listener. Um, I think it's also opening up new audiences for local stations, because in the past, local stations' work have been very confined by geography, you know, underneath the broadcast right. tower, located in a very specific geography. Um, now a station who is doing something that might be appealing to somebody in another community because the two communities have similarities or just, you know, you and I live in different communities, but we happen to be interested in the same thing that the station in my community specializes in covering, you can now have access to it. So you also bring stories from the local community to a nationwide audience then? At times we can. That mostly comes into play with podcasts, quite okay. frankly. So we're really helping to create new audiences mm -hmm. for station podcasts. So there have been a lot of cases where... A station's done a podcast, it, you know, it found some listeners locally. We realized, oh, this has interest way beyond this local community, and we have presented it to a wider audience and helped that station get, you know, significant podcast listeners, enough so that some of them have even gotten podcast sponsorship. Wow. So that's helped these stations become more successful with the content that originated in the local community, mm -hmm. maybe telling a story that in many ways is local, but it actually has some national relevance and resonance. So for me, that's kind of exciting because I always joke, I got into NPR One and took a job at NPR because I actually care about the future of local news and local news coverage. And that's something that worries me. So mm -hmm. it's been exciting to try to figure out how do we modernize and come up with new ways to ensure local news and coverage of what's happening all across this country, not just on the East and West Coasts, right. is gonna be there in the future. And I listen uh, frequently to the KCRW podcast yeah. because I'm very interested in, in the issues that are in, are relevant in Los Angeles related to the media business. The business, a big example of that. But I don't particularly uh, need to know what's going on in, in the nuances of local Los Angeles right. uh, daily news. So that's an interesting way to sort of break apart the, the different ways that the app can bring in the podcast, but maybe not necessarily mm -hmm. the local news, except for yep. where you want to be located. And I imagine it's also helpful, given that you have that flexibility of saying, um, you know, 
picking your local station. You know, you, you wouldn't have to pick where you are right now, but if you were a student away at school or uh, a snowbird and you know, vacationing away for a long period, you, there'd be a way to keep up with multiple communities. Absolutely. And it brings into questions, you know, what is local? What does mm-hmm. that mean? Is that where you live right now? Is it where you're from? Is it just a place you have a connection with? Or all the above. Well, exactly. So people can kind of pick and choose and stay connected to the things that are meaningful, whether that's a geography, a sense of place, or even a topic. Creating an app. That's, that's not necessarily something that we think of as part of, of, of public broadcasting and, and the realm of their mission. Was, was that a controversial choice? Or, or um, what was behind that decision to extend into app development? I mean, I think public media for a while has really been looking at how do we think of ourselves less as broadcasters on radio or television, but more content providers. How do we connect with communities, create conversations, provide coverage, provide um, entertainment that helps bring people together? And at a certain point, I think we all got to this place where the actual platform is less important than the content. So it became focused on how do we create content and reach audiences with that content. And then it's the matter of figuring out what's the pathway. Is it radio? Is it an in-person conversation in a community center? Is it a web page? Is it a tweet? Or is it an app? Mm-hmm. So it's more and more about how do we reach audiences. And NPR One was really built as, all right, we've got this audience that isn't, that's drifting away from radio. How do we reach them? Well, they use their smartphones all the time. More and more people are relying on dashboard systems in cars. Mm-hmm. And, you know, who knows what kind of systems are going to be coming down the pike. Turns out Alexa and Google <laughs> Home um, fit perfectly, beautifully into the NPR One approach. So NPR One was created not necessarily even as an app, but a way of thinking about content, understanding who people are and where they're located. It was more of a system of services to be used in the development of digital services that's kind of redundant in public media. So NPR One was the first manifestation of that Mm -hmm. as an app. Mm -hmm. And it's really this system of managing content that's customized for people that mixes national and local Mm -hmm. and then presents it to them in an interactive way. So what we do on the app has translated really well to car dashboards. It's translated really well into the voice-activated speakers where you can say, Alexa, play NPR One. Mm-hmm. Alexa, skip that story. You know, Alexa, play this podcast for me. So it's the same kind of functionality, just twisted a little bit as we move between some of these new platforms. So to bring that all back yeah. around, it's less about, oh my gosh, public radio decided to get into the app development business. It's more public radio is thinking, what is the future of the journalism and entertainment content that we mm-hmm. provide? And how do we reach that next generation of listeners who, you know, would sit in front of a radio and want to hit the skip button? Right. Oh, look, there's no skip button. Or, ooh, I want to share that easily. And there's no share button. Mm-hmm. Or, oh, why don't they know that I'm not interested in, <laughs> in jazz and I want, you know, blues <laughs> or whatever? Oh, that's interesting. I've long looked at uh, the development of the iPlayer technology in mm-hmm. Britain and, and just how I think few in the States recognize how far ahead Britain was of the U.S. in terms of making that kind of functionality available for television viewers. And it, it in my mind, it all comes back to the difference of a public service mandate and that idea that you know we're trying to make our content as available as possible, which is exactly the opposite of the mindset of the commercial industry in many cases, where we have to protect our intellectual property. We don't want it to get out. You know, we want you to be 
here in the linear audience so that we can count you as an, as an eyeball or a, an right. ear for our advertising. It has been interesting to see in this period of great innovation you know, some of the opportunities that have been available to non-commercial media that aren't constrained with, with some of the same pressures of, of maintaining those revenue streams and eyeballs and that old way of counting. Absolutely. I think for commercial broadcasters, it's about making money. That's what they're there to do. Public media has always been driven by mission. You know, we're there to inform and educate and help, you know, lift up um, mm-hmm. people's lives. And yes, you know, we have to maintain a business model, but that's almost a secondary consideration. We feel if we're doing our jobs right, the money will follow versus, you know, right. let's go for the money and hopefully everything <laughs> else will then fall into place. So what have been some of the challenges you've noticed, um, both in embarking on a new technical adventure and launching an app, as well as getting an audience to go and find this app and actually use it? Sure. So on a personal level, just learning the technology of app development and working with, you know, a so-called product team, it's a very different culture than journalism. (laughs) It's been fascinating, but it's different. And I often joke that I feel like I've had to learn a foreign language. And in my day to day life, I'm translating between the language of journalists Mm -hmm. and the language of of, uh, coders and product developers. But on a more macro level, you know, this is something new. And for people who've been traditional broadcast listeners, it's a different way of approaching content. And for them, it's not always a comfortable way to, to approach content. So there's been an education process um, helping some of the folks, even at NPR, understand what the potential of this is, how it works, why it's an important um, thing for us to be doing. We've had to educate the stations on how this is something that can support what they're trying to do in their communities and support their mission as well as their business goals. And we've had to educate, you know, the audience. Um, that said, younger people, technologically savvy people are like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. This has changed my life. So it really depends on who we're talking to. Obviously, the app market is a very crowded space. So just getting noticed has been a struggle. Um, but that said, the people who've discovered us and we're doing fairly well these days are very enthusiastic about it and really enjoy it and tell their friends. So that's really heartening. Yeah, one of the things we discussed in our conversation with Lynette Clementson was the challenge of, of really needing to put marketing yes. often behind any of these new endeavors. And if you're dealing with public service broadcasting, that budget's already limited and you know it's painful to put that money toward marketing instead of content. Uh, I was just teaching technological change and, and sort of how media industries cope with it in, in my undergraduate class. And I show early Apple iPhone ads, um, which are just stunning to, to the students of today because they're the first one is explaining, this is a phone. Right. This is how you use the internet. This is how your your email is here. And and so I think it's important to recognize that you know often things can be very easy to use, but that create crossing, helping potential users cross that bridge into using it is uh, doesn't naturally happen. Exactly. And they're distinct generational differences. There's a lot of exceptions, but overall, you know, the younger people just get the app and exactly what it does mm-hmm. and exactly why it's useful to them. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not always so obvious to older listeners. Right. They've been very comfortable with radio. Radio's working great for them. And you know what? That's fine. Right. This really was an attempt to make sure that we're still relevant to mm-hmm. a generation that really does consume media very differently. 
And again, the the technological affordance of giving you the flexibility of creating one thing for one group, another thing still available for another group. You didn't have to choose, right? Exactly. And so that too is, I think, something very valuable for for public service media. I think historically that challenge of you shall serve them all when they all are very different. That right. it just always struck me as, as really an, an impossible duty. Um, and, and these technologies do offer tools to better be able to do Absolutely. that. Absolutely. I mean, we know we have some people that really only interact with NPR through websites. Mm-hmm. There are other listeners who really only interact with us through social media. And others move back and forth between platforms. Some are only broadcast. Some are very invested in you know using apps. So it's really, we'll meet you where you are. <laughs> So let's talk a little bit about um, NPR One's algorithm and how does the algorithm differ from what you would consider to be your editorial news judgment as a journalist and as an editor? Sure. So we really think about the algorithm as a modern editorial tool. I mean, algorithms are just rules. They're written by people to do certain things. So I think there's a lot of discourse these days about algorithms, they're all bad. Well, there's people behind all of them, and people design them, set them up to do certain things and accomplish certain goals. So we've set ours up to really help support our editorial mission, which is to give people the news of the day, but also to surprise and delight them with a little bit of serendipity. So those two things in some ways run against the narrative that you hear a lot about, you know, algorithms, pushing people into filter bubbles and not helping them to explore the broader world. We've really been working to set up an algorithm that's going to help people see more than just what they're predisposed to seek out. There are certain things that the algorithm really can't do and the editors are in full control over, which is managing some of the big important news stories of the day and making sure you find out what's happening in the world. We also set it up so that you're pretty much always going to get a little dose of serendipity. But there's other ways that the algorithm does help to support things we know you're interested in, whether it's knowing where you live and making sure that you're getting local content, whether it's giving you the podcast that we know you have liked and had a good experience listening to, or, okay, you know, you're somebody who doesn't like kind of water cooler type stories. Maybe you don't need to get them. It's not really essential to make you an informed citizen. There's other ways we can use the algorithm to really help support your interests about very specific things. If I like murder murder uh, mysteries and you like lit fiction, maybe we both don't need to get each other's reading preference, you know, interviews about each other's reading preferences, unless there's something incredibly newsworthy, at which point we can tell the algorithm, okay, you know, this interview with this mystery writer touches on some other really important, deeper things about the civic discourse. We want to make sure everybody hears that. So we have a lot of control over what it does. The other thing I think is interesting about algorithms is we think so much about them pushing people into these filter bubbles. Well, we can actually use them to break filter bubbles. We can watch and see that, you know, Amanda, you're really listening to a lot of, you know, conservative podcasts these days. Maybe we're going to offer you some from a different point of view for a couple days and see if, you know, that will help you expand your horizons a little bit and vice versa. And we're actually doing that type of thing. We can also use the algorithm to realize that, oh, you know, you heard a piece that had an error in it. We're going to get you the correction on that so that we didn't somehow get a false narrative out there. So I think there's a lot of ways to really use algorithms to help people get a more full Mm -hmm. view of the world than a more narrow view of the world. And so that's what we're thinking about a lot as we use it. I think this conversation about 
public media, it's it's valuable corrective to what has been, as you know, this this dominant discourse about the way most algorithms are being deployed in culture right now, which is for commercial services around commercial ends that are built around collecting listeners, viewers, readers, and selling them to mm-hmm. advertisers. And the idea that yeah, those issues that are raising concern in the commercial space are not inherent to the technology, but they're being built in for that commercial media purpose. And so that you can take those same tools, use them in a public service context, and use them in in many different ways, and and perhaps provide more, as you're suggesting, of a balance of, of both personalization, but also making sure that you're still capable of doing some of that community building that um, we have thought of as being characteristic of that broadcast era um, and that perhaps we've moved, we've moved away from in many of our media. Exactly. I mean, I think since the dawn of time, technology has been able to be used for good or evil. And we have to make the choices. It's just a tool. How do we want to use it and to what end? We have a lot of conversations at NPR and with the member stations about how do we use some of these new tools to support our mission and our values? and to serve people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, again, yeah, there's some business considerations. You know, we have to raise the money needed to do the journalism and provide the distribution and the marketing to get people to content. But the first consideration is, you know, are we covering the right stories and are we able to get them to the people that are interested and need to know? Mm-hmm. And how do we use the technology to further that? Yeah, and I noticed as well... <laughs> As an, an NPR member, um, you hate the pledge. Everyone hates pledge drive, right? But if I've already given, you know, I've always wished, is there a way around this? Um, and yes. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not going to happen on broadcast. <laughs> no, exactly. And it's great as well that you had, that you have that availability in those moments in which you especially appreciate maybe something that you just heard that you have your device in your hand. And in that moment, you can also, you know, donate more or become a member. How have the issues that are part of NPR structure related to it, it is both local and it has the national organization? How have how has the app been experienced by the local stations? Have there been problems or concerns about you know, the the changing nature of how the organization uh, reaches viewers? Given something that really is more of a, a national uh, device, or yeah, I mean. There were definite concerns early on. You know, what is this going to mean for local? And honestly, one of the reasons I was hired on initially was to work on local and to figure out how do we truly make this a local national partnership? So it's not just this national platform with NPR's content, but how do we take what we created on terrestrial broadcasting, that mix of local and national that helps to support, you know, both services, how do we move that into the digital space in a really meaningful way? So that was my initial job. Um, the person who hired me in left. I became managing editor, blah, blah, blah. But we've worked really hard to shore up the ways that locals presented, make sure that local stations, you know, fundraising messages and other um, business needs are supported so that it really is this collaborative, you know, partnership um, versus something that could be seen. And I think at one point by some parties was seen as potentially competitive. Mm-hmm. That really was not the goal right. with it. More and more, the conversation has moved to realizing that it, we have to band together both in these digital mm-hmm. platforms and even more and more as a reporting network to be able to tell the stories of this country and reach mm-hmm. everybody in this country. So you know, yeah, there, you know, a new change is hard for people and any new platform could be a threat or it could be an opportunity. And it took some time to help people see the opportunity. But I think we're getting there. 
Uh, it's interesting, and, and I suppose it's you know deep wired human nature right, to always to see the the threat as opposed to the opportunity, and um, you know, that the assumption has been as as some of these new technologies have rolled out in in, in different media spaces to assume cannibalization right. is what's going to happen, but how frequently actually the story has been increased use as a result of moving from what were often inconvenient ways. Uh, you know, broadcasting from a viewer perspective or listener perspective, broadcasting is pretty inconvenient, uh, especially if there's particular content that you're interested in. And you know, as these technologies that have brought greater convenience and flexibility, surprisingly or unsurprisingly, you know, people consume more uh, as a result. And it wasn't even more consumption. It was actually new people consuming. Mm-hmm. So what we found early on is a lot of the folks coming in were really not terrestrial listeners. So stations were getting new people listening to them, new contact information about their audience, Mm -hmm. and it was really adding. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what changed some of the conversation is realizing, oh, you know, NPR One isn't pulling away broadcast listeners. It's bringing in listeners that weren't really listeners. Maybe they were listening to commercial radio. Mm -hmm. Maybe they just knew our brand from Twitter or Facebook. Um, but they really weren't core station listeners. So I think that has helped people realize that these new technologies are exactly, as you said, they're additive and they're bringing in new people, helping them listen longer or engage with our content longer. And that's the real goal. You know, if you're happy listening to broadcast, keep on. (laughs) But there's other people for whom we haven't been serving all that well with broadcast. And this is a new way to reach people. So let's get a little bit more into kind of what this question leads, which is how NPR One gathers information about their listeners. So what kind of information can NPR gather about who their listeners are and how they use the app? And what trends have you noticed as you've started to look and dig through the data that the app can provide. Sure, and most of the most of it's very aggregated. Um, you know, stations get some very basic contact information about a listener and when they last listened. Um, but beyond that, we really do take listeners' privacy really seriously, and there's a pretty extensive privacy policy posted about how we use the data. Um, that said, we are able to look at you know overall performance of storytelling and podcasts. So that's given us some really helpful information about how do we craft stories in the most compelling way possible. And what are the things that entices somebody to listen to something they might have turned off and vice versa? What are the things that push people away from content that we really would actually like them to hear? So the data, and this is something that I've been a real advocate for, has really started a conversation about what great storytelling looks like in public media and what do we need to do to make sure that we're putting our best foot forward with every national story and every local story that we tell both on NPR One but also on the air. And we've made some changes to the broadcasting, to our podcasts, and to our storytelling in response to some of the things we were seeing in NPR One. Is it filtering down to the level of the journalists? I know I'm starting to read more as uh, researchers are going in and sort of studying how I think it's Chartbeat you know, mm-hmm. is, is affecting um, print newsrooms. And, and as now journalists have all of this feedback about who's reading and listening and how, how long they're reading and listening. And, and is NPR One the, the primary way that NPR is able to gain more data about how listeners uh, are behaving with the content? Sure. I mean, we did get some hints 
in this from Nielsen PPM data, which is where folks in major markets basically mm-hmm. wear little meters. Um, that gave us a better view than diaries, but it's still very aggregated, and it's hard to tell exactly what content was where and how people were responding. With NPR One, I mean, we can look at one single story and see every time somebody skipped out of the story or yeah. how, you know, how well did it retain listeners. And the interesting thing is we analyze and do lots of content analyses and look at these skip graphs and retention charts and mean percent complete and all of these numbers <laughs> is time and time again, we keep coming back to the lessons any good editor would tell you. But oftentimes it was editor's opinion versus reporter. Uh, And now the editors are able to say, you know what? We have data that supports the fact that you need a really strong opening to your story. Mm -hmm. And you need to say right from the get-go what's at stake and why somebody should care about this story. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, all of these things that good editors know, don't take more time than you need to tell a story. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Brevity does matter. People don't have all day to spend. They're very busy. It's really been a lot of um, data analysis that supports what we've known, but now we have the proof instead of it just being my word against your word or my opinion versus your opinion, that these are the things that help a story be more successful than another story. Obviously, you know, there's always going to be some things that people, that cause people to skip and you expect them to skip content warnings, spoiler warnings. You can see people just skip out in droves. You know, (laughs) I don't want to know what happened on Game of Thrones or, oh my gosh, I got kids in the backseat. I don't want to hear about domestic, you know, violence right now. And there's all these things where we can see the very direct impacts of what we do in a story and how an audience member behaves in response to it. One thing I've noticed with NPR One um, and kind of how it's been used is it's tweaked the development process for podcasts and new shows on NPR. Like I noticed uh, Sam Sanders' new thing back when that was um, a fledgling idea was developed on NPR One and initially was like NPR One exclusive. So how has NPR One changed the development process for NPR shows and podcasts? Absolutely. We can test things now. We can take an early idea put it onto NPR One, see how people respond. We can look at it and go, oh, you know, a lot of people skipped out five minutes into this. What were you doing five minutes? <laughs> Let's take a look at this. Let's try another version or another episode where we do something differently at five minutes. Mm-hmm. Does that perform better or worse? So it gives us the ability to almost workshop. In some ways, it's not unlike, you know, doing an advanced screening and, right. you know, or focus group. There have been all kinds of ways media outlets have tested content. Pilot process and TV. Exactly. Right. exactly. Although this is much more organic. I think one of the problems always of those environments were that they were so artificial yeah. and, and mm-hmm. people did not behave as they do in the wild, exactly. so to say. And, 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 and the, the, the app certainly allows you to do that. It's closer to the wild. Right. You know, it's a little bit, depending on what you're developing, it could be a little bit different, mm-hmm. but it still does give you some really good clues into what's working, what's not working, what needs to be refined, and does this even have potential? Mm-hmm. You know, we could try something early on, and it's like, well, you know, the early results weren't so good. We did some follow-up surveys to really try to verify what we were seeing in the listening behavior, and you know what? Let's mm-hmm. move on and try something different. We credit NPR One with helping us develop some big hits for NPR. The Politics Podcast, which was huge, went through some pretty significant changes after seeing the NPR listening da- NPR okay. One listening data. It's been a minute, Sam Sanders Podcast, same thing. And now that's going to be launched as a, being launched as a radio show. So it's really helped us with the development process. In the past, 
you know, when we were developing shows at Michigan Radio, you put it on the air, you kind of hope for the best. Six right. months later, you know, you get some audience data. <laughs> then you're like, hmm, wonder what this really means. Is it the time slot or the show? This gives us much more confidence that when we go out there with something, it's going to perform. Mm-hmm. So I think that helps free up resources mm-hmm. to create more content, to also promote content, because we haven't spent so much time developing things that aren't going to fly. Right. Well, and it's also, given the you know, decades of experience, you have, you have a pretty good sense of what works in the terrestrial space and with that main radio listening audience. But as podcasts allow different relationships between listeners and, and the content, I think it's, it's interesting to have that increased data to help you understand, you know, how is this audio form different from this other thing that we've been doing for all this time? And it, it sounds like as well that there's a, a bit of an audience difference between uh, who you're accessing with NPR One and, and the sort of general characteristics of that, the mass terrestrial exactly. audience. So it's not, you know, it's not perfect. There's some differences in the audience. There's some differences in the format. I expect what we see on NPR One isn't exactly what we would see in broadcast or podcast listening, but with no other view into it, I would say you'd be remiss if you don't pay attention to the lessons from NPR One. Um, There's enough evidence in other, you know, whether it's survey data or what we see in PPMs, um, what we see in podcast listening to validate it to Mm -hmm. some degree. Um, But no, it's not perfect but it's definitely a really good view. It's kind of the difference between you see one thing in an x-ray and one thing in an ultrasound, but you got a pretty good idea what's going on in the leg. (laughs) So where do you think are the areas where NPR One still has room to grow and kind of still has room to develop as an app and as an idea? Like, where do you think NPR One goes from where you are now? Sure. I think it starts to move beyond just being an app. Um, That's kind of where the idea started, but this system of pressing play and getting a customized local national mix of content has a lot of potential. And I think we're going to be using it more in the voice activated speaker world and probably on platforms that don't even exist um, because it's a really powerful way to provide people with kind of the modern version of what, you know, radio was. Mm -hmm. It's like, you don't have to really do a lot but you get great content. But in the case of an NPR one, what we call flow, it's customized for you. Um, So I think that's number one. You know, number two, there's a lot more we can do with personalization. There's a lot more we can do with local. And I think there's a lot more audience development work we can do to Mm -hmm. get more people using it and understanding what it does. So I'm pretty bullish on the future of it. You know, as as things like the voice activated speakers came into the marketplace, it's like, oh my gosh, we didn't invent this with this in mind, but... This is so perfect for it because what we developed will works beautifully in that environment. And I don't expect that to change as, you know, we start accessing audio on our refrigerators or our toasters or, you know, our socks. Um, It's a really convenient way to take advantage of the modern tools and modern ways of interacting with content and provide what we've been traditionally known for. Thank you very much for coming in. Uh, We've, again, learned a lot. Um, and good luck. Uh, it sounds like there's a lot of opportunity going forward. There is, and thank you for your interest in it. And now it's time for the last segment of each and every show, What We're Watching This Week. Amanda, what are you watching? 
I am finishing the final season of Halt and Catch Fire. I have only the finale to go. And, you know, I have to say that I think this has been one of the most underappreciated series in recent years. It has not gotten nearly the love of many other cable shows, and and it it has been consistently excellent uh, and innovative. So maybe this will be the year, although it it would be sad that uh, it won't be returning as a result. Yeah, I my catch up with that has kind of stalled, but that's more on me than on the show. I very much look forward to actually going through and digging through seasons two, three, and four. And how about you, Alex? What are you watching? I am watching season two of The Good Place, which is one of my favorite shows on the air right now. For those of you who aren't familiar, The Good Place is about a a woman who is not a good person who wakes up in heaven. And it is one of the most twisty, turny, funny, clever sitcoms on the market. You know, it kind of upended its show at the end of the first season, and I don't want to get into spoilers because there are legitimate spoilers, and it, it's a quick watch. It's a fun watch. It makes me laugh so much. Kristen Bell and Ted Danson are great, strong supporting cast. I cannot vouch for this show enough. And that's it for this week's edition of Media Business Matters. If you want to learn more about Media Business Matters, you can go to amandalots.com and click on the podcast link at the top of the page. If you want new episodes delivered to your feed as soon as they're available, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and on the Google Play Store. And if you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps new people find the show. Amanda, where can our fine listeners find you on Twitter? At Dr. TV Lots. That's D-R-T-V-L-O-T-Z. And you can find Tamar Charney, our guest today, on Twitter, at Tamar Charney. That's at T-A-M-A-R-C-H-A-R-N-E-Y. And you can find me at Alex Intner. That's Alex, I-N-T-N-E-R. Thank you all for listening. We'll We'll be back with the next episode of our public media series real soon.